0: Thank you once again. And um, it's wonderful to see all of you back. (laughs) Um, Truly, it is a a real pleasure to be here. Um, uh, Those of you who have... uh, either pastors, Pastor Hale or um, elders or others who've had the privilege of teaching, will know what un- the joy it is just to go to different places and meet different people and and talk about things that you don't always get a chance to talk about in sermons. And, and I confess that on this occasion, what really happened was, um, by God's grace, uh, what Pastor Hale and the session here wanted to talk about happened to coincide. Side with some things I was thinking about, but i wasn 't thinking about deeply enough and fast enough, and so i 've really appreciated the prompt to get going and get moving faster and as i 've done so i 've I've, um, realized that the, the rabbit hole here goes down pretty deep um, and the pile of books that I had thought, oh, I'll bring these with me because I could quote from them, grew to the point where it was threatening the baggage allowance on the flight. Um, and I, I mulled over this and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll just prep the material as well as I can and then I'll see who's here and then we'll respond to that. And so, so uh, uh, one or two points I've mentioned um, other authors and I've thought occasionally about uh, maybe going some extended discussion of their works in detail. I'll do a little bit of that But I'm conscious we've got some young folks here, so I think what it may also be helpful to do is to try and just summarize some of those more detailed lines of argument and give the references so that those of you who are inclined to do so can chase them down yourselves. But nonetheless, so we'll have a bit of a balance. Some of it will be a little bit more complex, I think. I hope not too complex. Uh, But mostly, I hope I will just be able to say things which, like, if I can't teach so the six- and eight-year-olds who are paying attention can understand, you need to get yourself a new speaker. So, all right, let me pray, and then we'll kick off this morning. Merciful Father, once again, we're grateful to you for our fellowship in Christ. Perhaps particularly grateful, having been reflecting yesterday on the constitutive significance of relationships in forming us as people. We knew this already, of course we knew this, but just to have it spelled out, why it's such a big deal that we can be here together, is perhaps new and therefore valuable. And we ask that you'd help us as we continue to reflect on how both relationships and our bodily habits form us as human beings. Would you cause us to use this time fruitfully and well and transform us to make us more like our Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name, amen. So I want to pick up from yesterday um, somewhat obliquely by making a a rather bold assertion which I will backtrack only slightly from uh, before kind of plunging in and trying to argue that it's true the assertion is counseling doesn't work pastoral counseling professional counseling whatever kind of counseling doesn't work now backtrack from that slightly only slightly of course it's true that the solution to some problems for which people might seek counsel is information Uh, Sometimes the solution to deeply troubling emotional problems is information. Um, Those of you who are married with children uh, have likely experienced the emotional pain of losing a child before birth, miscarriage. My wife and I had a miscarriage before our son was born and at that point i wanted among other things information i called my pastor and said can you just go through with me that thing that you said a few weeks ago when you talked about how the children of believers who die at a very young age are not lost but we can be confident that they're saved and with the lord and he he said um Steve, what's happened? Because he's a very good pastor, so I told him. He, and, but I still wanted the references to David's response after the death of the child born to Bathsheba. Pastoral counseling does work. Information does work. But we are gravely mistaken if we think that the solution to every problem of sin and every problem of immaturity in our lives is information. And what sometimes happens uh, in pastoral counseling situations is we get trapped in a hopeless circle where what we're doing is, you know, I'll book weekly appointments with somebody and they come back and we talk and I transmit more information and they presumably understand most of it And they go away and not much changes. And so they come back the next week and people will talk about, well, I'm in counseling. uh, Whether with their pastor or with some professional counseling service. And it's not that I think such regular, ongoing, frequent, numerous pastoral encounters have no value. But I wonder whether we ought perhaps to question their sufficiency in the light of the fact that people seem to be able to go through counseling for years and not to be able to deal with the problems that they're presenting with. And why is that? Well, you know now, because we talked about it last night. Just to recap from yesterday, people are not just shaped by teaching. They're shaped also by two other broad domains of experience. We are shaped by habits, bodily rituals, things that we do actions that we repeat, what Jamie Smith calls cultural liturgies, embodied practices, especially repeated embodied practices, shape us profoundly. And we are also shaped by relationships. There's something intangible about um, not just relationships in the sense we normally think of it. I'm friends with Pastor Hale. I'm becoming, I guess, developing relationships with some of you as I'm talking to you. But just the slightly more distant contact with another human being let me illustrate this. What I mean by this: um, How many of you remember the uh, the flight that crashed in the Hudson? Captain Scully. Yeah, a few of them remember this. And basically, what happened? He took off from Laguardia Airport. Immediately, hit birds at an altitude too low and at a stage too early in the flight to turn back to the airport safely. And so, it's about a minute or two before he runs out of altitude. And um, so, he just. You you can get the cockpit recording on um, YouTube. I listened to the cockpit recording with my my son who was thinking at the time of being an airline pilot. He's not thinking of that now, but not for this reason. But what was truly remarkable about it is you listen to two or three or four different air traffic controllers all suggesting, do you want to go to LaGuardia? Do you want to go to Teterboro? Do you want to go to some other airport? We've got a runway over here. You hear in the background the squealing passengers and you hear all the alarms in the cockpit and weep, 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 weep. And the, the flight officer is kind of obviously playing with the controls and the stewardesses is trying to calm everybody down and there's noise everywhere. And Captain Scully says at one point, we may end up in the Hudson. Cool as ice just, and I was just, I was gripped by that concrete, personal, relational instantiation of a virtue. I had read many, many things and thought for many years about being calm under pressure, not letting your emotions run away with you, not being anxious. But something about that two second relational experience gripped me and I sat and listened to it afterwards with my son Ben, he was a teenage boy at the time, 12, 13 years old, whatever Um, and I had not modelled to him a brilliant example of non-anxious presence under pressure and I think we both benefited just from hearing Captain Scully say we may end up in the Hudson because what we saw there was the the third element of that triad, the formative effect of seeing another person embodying a virtue. So remember the triad I talked about yesterday. Um, Our hearts, which are the control center of our lives, and we talked about that at some length, are shaped by what we think, yes, and what we do with our bodies, yes, and by those relational encounters with other people. It might not need to be your best friend, it might just be a person in whom you see instantiated a virtue which is admirable. And something about the fact that it's in a person makes it transformative. Now, we then moved on to um, talk about uh, a biblical instance of this, perhaps the paradigmatic instance of this. How are people brought to maturity in Christ? Or how ought we to be brought to maturity in Christ? The answer is through the process of being raised as children. Scripture actually attaches the fulfillment of God's promises to faithful child rearing. And you think about the the whole structure of covenant theology, I will be God to you and to your children after you. Think Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Um, uh, And it's remarkable passage because at the beginning God is talking to Abraham I'll be your God and by the time he's got to the end of verse 8 he's really only talking about Abraham's offspring and I will be their God but the whole structure of God bringing his people to the full experience of the relationship with him is predicated on child rearing that's what you do and so what do parents do for their children well the perfect parent would be the manifestation of that triad wouldn't they they'd be the the relational presence They would be putting in place structures to allow their children to flourish. You know, you get up at a certain time and you go to bed at a certain time and you eat meals at a certain time in a certain way and we talk in a certain way. And and you do the teaching, you do the cognitive part. And my proposal then was that maybe what uh, um, immaturity is is a failure of that experience. Maybe we've all had imperfect parents. Well, that wouldn't be entirely a shock, would it? And maybe all of us were imperfect children. So even when our parents were doing a great job, I wasn't paying attention. Um, and our parents likely will be the first to admit that they were imperfect, we're not blaming them. We've just got to deal with the consequences. If that's the problem then, then maybe the solution is to reinstantiate in adulthood some of the structures And relationships as well as some of the teaching that should have been in place during childhood maybe we just need to grow up again now that's where we got to I'd like to get really uh, a bit more practical first in relation to the habits piece and then in relation to the relationships piece and that will occupy us for most of uh, this first session this morning. Um, so, um, Then we're going to go and talk on, in, in, the, in the final session, we'll talk about the big bogeyman in the room that I mentioned earlier yesterday. We'll talk about social media because we may as well f- confront the fact that the, the single most deformative influence, to borrow a phrase from Jamie Smith that I mentioned yesterday, in the modern world is social media. It corrupts our relational um Uh, influences and it shapes our habits. So we need to think about that. But before we do that, let's think positively and constructively. Like what could you do to help your kids not go off the rails like you did? What could you do as an adult if you think, I wish I had the self-discipline that I see some other men have. I wish I had the patience that I see some other mums have. I wish I had the, the work ethic that my big brother has. Whatever it is, what could we do? Well, let's think about what our parents provide in relation to habits. I want to suggest a number of different things. What a great parent would look at their kid and say, well, I can see where little Jimmy is. Little Jimmy has a problem with whatever it is one of our children I keep using our children as examples I, I was talking to him on the phone yesterday evening and I said uh, D- do say to Ben that I did use him a couple of times as an illustration he was mostly good <laughs> um, but yeah anyway um, don't tell them about this next one because uh, we noticed that one of our children um, when she oh, that narrows it down a bit was young <laughs> we, when we used to play games as a family she didn't want to be on um, She didn't want to be like on her own team. What she'd want to do was to be on somebody else's team who she thought would likely win, mostly mum. And if it got like two thirds of the way through, you know, like two thirds of the way through a game of Monopoly, we didn't play Monopoly that much, but two thirds of the way through the game of Monopoly, you can kind of tell who's going to win, right? Because it's one of those kind of cumulative things. She would, if it was Ben was going to win, she'd she'd want to, I want to be on Ben's team now. She's very young. Now, what we diagnosed, Ah, oh, interesting. Little daughter, we, we, we need to, try to do something about this. We don't want her to grow up into the kind of young lady who can't be on the losing side without getting stroppy about it. Accurate diagnosis is what parents try to provide. Well, what are you going to have to do? You are going to have to do that yourself. You are going to have to provide for yourself an accurate self diagnosis of all of your pathologies you could ask your parents if you're young and that would be a good thing to do um, uh, I've had many great conversations one got just great conversation just this last week with uh, um, one family and a group of fine young sons in that family um, and they're just thinking through how, what what should I do if I want to be a really faithful man. And it was a fantastic conversation because they're willing to analyse themselves. We're going to have to do that. You, you'd have to think. Okay, well, I'm I don't know, 22, 25 years old, 35 years old. I'm a mum, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a school student. What is it about me that isn't like Jesus? An accurate self-diagnosis is one of the things you're going to have to do. Uh, second thing, what kids do or what parents do for their kids, having defined the problem they 'll then define the solution we, we know what we know what it ought to look like, and just pragmatically a clear goal in whatever area of life your, your child is struggling in you think well, um, right now he, he gets distracted all the time you know we, we are doing schoolwork, and we've got three or four kids around the kitchen table, and little Helen is constantly gazing out at the hummingbirds at the window. It's like, well, you can't constantly be gazing at the hummingbirds, sweetie. Sometimes you need to just get your head down and do your math homework. So what would be the goal? Well, get your head down and do the math homework. But your parent, you're no longer six years old, most of you. You need to define for yourself not just what the problem is, but what the solution would look like. So that's two things that parents do. What's the third thing they do? Well, great parents will not just shout at Helen, will you stop looking at the hummingbirds? <laughs> to ears. five minutes later. And she's gazing out the window. What, what will they do? I mean, yeah, all of us would get frustrated, but what would a good parent do? We would put in place structures, like kind of lifestyle scaffolding to help shape the young lady to develop more productive habits. Maybe you'd say, listen, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to pop you on a different chair um, facing the wall. And you're like, oh, that's horrible. Nothing to look at. Yes, yeah, so there's nothing to look at. Um, and you normally work for about two minutes before you look looking out the window. So we're going to set a little stopwatch here for ten minutes. And you're going to sit here for ten minutes and not look up from the desk. And do your math homework. You ready? Click. You've put in, what have you done? You've put in place scaffolding to help her to change her habits. And she hates it at first and she's like, where are those hummingbirds? (laughs) But over time, the 10 minutes becomes 15 and 20, and she gets to the point where she's cultivated the habits through being placed within those structures so that she can sit in a room with hummingbirds everywhere and she can still get on with her math homework if, she's been, if that's what she's been given to do. No, we're going to have to do that ourselves. I think this is one of the hardest parts. What, what should a teenage boy do if um, he's irritable during the day because he's on Instagram every night from about 10.30 p.m. till 1.30 a.m.? And if he's on Instagram at that time of night, on his own in his bedroom, we probably have other problems on the horizon as well. What should a young boy do? Well, I'm not just talking about young boys, actually. This, will be, this might be a um, 25-year-old man or a 35-year-old man issue as well. Well, your mum and dad aren't around in that case to put the structures in place for you. What are you going to do? You're going to have to do something Structural about the, the way that your life is organized so that you can't do that because clearly you lack the willpower right now just to stop yourself where are you going to leave your mobile phone I used to do something very simple when it wasn't quite the same issue but I found myself constantly distracted um, at work in my office and the, one of the things about being a pastor it's like many jobs in the sense that there's always 50 different things you could be doing but when you're prepping a sermon, you really need to do just one thing. So I used to put my—this is an obvious thing—I made a little wooden stand for my mobile phone. A beautiful little wooden stand out of a piece of English oak I found in a park in England. Carved it myself, and I placed it on another table, and I put my mobile phone on it. You would not believe the increase in productivity that came from that from that one change in the structure of my working environment. So what are you going to do? We might need to do that ourselves. Um, uh, Fourth thing, uh, tracking progress. Good parents will track the progress of their children and rejoice with them and encourage them uh, to as they're getting better at whatever it is, not gazing out the window looking at the daisies and the butterflies and the hummingbirds. Well, it's just remarkable to me how many um, pop psyche, non-Christian, self-help habit formation books really boil down to just this. Decide what you want to do, put in place a structure that will get you there, and then track your progress somehow. I don't know how you do it. Um, My wife and I um, have this kind of ongoing resolution to get physical exercise, which in Texas in the summer, we didn't realize quite how big a deal this would be, when it's 105 degrees outside and 70% humidity, you don't really want to go for a run. You have to put in place something else to motivate you. So I've got a little app on my phone that keeps track of how many times a week I lift weights or go for a run or something. I hate running. I'd much rather play football. I'll, I'll do cardio if a ball is involved, but otherwise weights I'm afraid, but and you can tell how little of that I do, right? <laughs> anyway, um, Nicole has like a little tick box thing on the refrigerator, and it's strangely motivating. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it is that the unbelievers seem to have spotted that that's a good thing to do, whereas lots of Christians haven't. But hey, I've told you now, so that would be a thing worth trying. But then there's a fifth point, and this is, um, in one sense, it's the easiest to identify, but it really is the hardest to actually do when we are children our parents provide all of the impetus all of the motivation all of the drive all of the discipline all of the commitment to this task of forming your habits have you noticed that your mum makes your breakfast every day you know it's like wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, Your parents provide that structure and they are absolutely committed to doing it. And the one thing I've, if there's one thing I've noticed in um, the way that people change or don't change over time, um, the people who change, who become more faithful, who become more mature in Christ, who learn to shepherd their hearts, who learn to guard their hearts, who grow towards the kind of admirable men and women who are like, they're the kind of guys I could send other people to just to hang out with and it would do them good. The people who are like that are the people who are absolutely committed personally to doing it. They really, really want to change. Let me tell you how, how I do this practically as a, as a pastor. If, if it gets to the point where i 've had a conversation with somebody or maybe a couple a couple of times um, and and, and it 's clear that you know they 've identified some things, maybe there 's some things in our relationship that aren 't working out so well, uh, maybe it 's me and my work, maybe it 's my relationship with my sons. They do something stupid, and I shout at them, and then I immediately feel like so wretched and I, and then I have to go and apologize by which point they 've done something else which i ring their necks for and you know they 've identified some problem well. I need to find a way of starting them down the road of motivation, self-motivation. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll try and figure out what I can ask them to do to contribute to this process. In other words, I will not show up to the next pastoral counseling session with my list of suggestions. I will have them show up to the next pastoral counseling session with their list of suggestions or with their diagnosis. Let me tell you, it is remarkable. There are some great people at All Saints in Fort Worth. I've had emails. That I print out, and it's like over two pages. I had one four page document from a man who's so committed to Christ, so committed to being the best dad, the best husband he can possibly be, that he spent hours trying to work through all the things that, all the ways, and he's not, it's not like he's a total train wreck, he's a great guy. Like, you, you, you know, he's. But he's not happy just being, he wants to be the most mature, godly man he can possibly be. So what I try to do is to both diagnose and encourage commitment from people by requiring them to do something. Do the same thing with young people. I wouldn't ask them for four pages. I did ask one group of um, uh, young people for um, four one word, descriptions of biblical virtues that would characterize how they'd relate to each other and to their sisters and to their mum and their dad. Get them to do it. Because if you do it, that is to say the the person who's trying to change does it. It is the thing that manifests the commitment that you will need. Husbands and wives, you could do this. If If you've had... Just another blow-up argument. Well, I don't know how you'd approach it, but you could go away for half an hour, and you could write down a bunch of things that each of you, you think, I need to change this about myself. The sort of thing that your mum or your dad would have done for you, perhaps not in writing, if you'd been 30 years younger and it had been in relation to some other issue. But go away and write down for half an hour, or just think for half an hour, and then come back together and say, okay, look, I'm really sorry, babe. This is, this is what I think I need to deal with in me. And then she'll give you that. Same thing. I need to deal with me. I need to deal with my husband. <laughs> That's not allowed, by the way. Um, because the act of engaging proactively in trying to address whatever it is, whatever area of life you want to grow in is crucial to starting you down the road to putting in place the structures that will create the habits that will create the character you're looking for. Structure, habits, character. And what we're doing then is we're exploiting that um, embodied element of what makes a human being a human being. That's what counseling is for. I think. Counseling is it's not come to me and I will solve your problems. It's not like a consultant um, in business where you say, you know, we're going to pay McKinsey's to come in and fix our company and they do a report and then they say, these are our list of recommendations and it's like, oh okay, well that's fine, thank you. And Counseling is more like a gym coach or a piano teacher. How many of you learn the piano? Are there any piano players here? You've got, yeah, you've got a whole bunch of musicians. You've got some people who teach music. Okay. Pastors and counselors are like a piano teacher. The best they can do is to meet with you once a week or once every two weeks, and they can hear how, you've, how you're getting on, and they can think, okay, well, if you want to improve, I suggest you do these things. Try this, and you've got to go away and do those exercises, and you've got to go away and practice those eight bars in the middle of that. Second movement of the sonata. And if you go to your piano lesson and and you like you sit down and you play what you've got to so far, and your pianist says, "Well, that's okay, but there are a few things you need to change." And like that's really helpful, thank you. And you go away and you do nothing for two weeks, and you come back in two weeks' time, you play the same thing again, and your pianist says, "Oh, it's not really improving." You should, and don't say that. Well, that's because you're such a terrible teacher. The problem is you're not doing the thing yourself that needs to be done because the way you learn to play the piano is an embodied ritual. It is by doing that you change. Now I did promise you some connections to some of the philosophical background of this and I want to just um, really this is by way of um, a plug for, for this book Um, You Are What You Love by um, James K.A. Smith. Um, The Spiritual Power of Habit is the subtitle. This is a popularization, really, of a three-part... Um, uh, cultural liturgies series, he's called it. Um, call, uh, it's Imagining the Kingdom, Desiring the Kingdom, and Awaiting the King. And all of them are good books. They're rather dense and I think slightly undisciplined in the sense that they're so complex and entangled. You keep running into the same ideas again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And, again. and I was trying to distill out of it what's the kind of core message. And the core message really is that we're shaped by bodily habits. I just want to read a short section just to give you a flavor of it. It's from You Are What You Love. It's on page 45. And what he's um, reflecting on an, an illustration that he's used, which is an illustration of going shopping um, and he, he says that the way that we shop and the way that our mall experience is constructed inculcates in us a certain set of attitudes of heart by what it causes us to do. You know, you walk past these glitzy windows with all these pictures of beautiful and wonderful people um, looking fabulous in that shirt or whatever and you just have to have one and and all the structures of the experience of shopping are designed to draw you in in that kind of way let me just read a a section just to give you a sense of some of the background of what I'm saying and encourage you to get this book Um, how do we learn to be consumerists he asks quote not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make me happy I don't think my way into consumerism Rather, I'm covertly conscripted into a way of life because I've been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. Come back to that idea of liturgies in a moment, but we're familiar with liturgy most uh, commonly from Christian worship, yes? What we do in church is a liturgy. And that liturgy has a certain shape to it, which is designed to inculcate a certain set of um, attitudes of heart. Well, it turns out that we engage in other liturgies as well. I'm going to come back to that question in a moment. And he continues. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were liturgies. These tangible, visceral, repeated Practices carry a story about human flourishing that we learn in unconscious ways. These practices are loaded with their own orientation towards a particular vision of the good life. We are being taught what and how to love. And maybe you do it by walking through them all. Maybe you do it by kind of flick, 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 scrolling through whatever Amazon search you've put in. He continues pointing out that the same phenomenon is at work everywhere. We could repeat such liturgical readings of cultural practices for an array of everyday rituals. When you put on these new liturgical lenses, you'll see the stadium in a whole new way as a temple of nationalism and militarism. Now, it might not be that the kind of nationalism and the kind of militarism that's at play there is a bad thing. I think probably Jamie Smith thinks it is a bad thing. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I think actually going to a sporting event and witnessing how people respond, especially in America with uh, um, the the national anthem and the, the various uh, liturgical elements, can be Positively formative, but his point is, it's formative. Illustration of this: we, we went to um, my, my parents-in-law came over to um, Texas uh, a couple of months ago, and um, we wanted to give them the full Texan experience. So we took them to the rodeo. <laughs> I didn't. I, I was kind of nervous because I didn't know what they'd think, and we hadn't been to the rodeo. We, th- we were thinking. I was thinking, is this a little bit too Texan? Should we have, <laughs> and. And they loved it. They thought it was absolutely wonderful. And I was really pleased. But it it, it got me thinking, um, this is in Fort Worth. And before the um, uh, various uh, events began, we had this 12 or 13-year-old girl stand and sing unaccompanied the national anthem. And everyone stood, like this. Now, I didn't know how to stand because I thought I've got to stand um, but I'm not American. I don't want to be kind of trivializing or insulting the gesture that American citizens make by kind of just copying it in a way that, that is inappropriate. So I just stood and my the rest of my family stood. And it was a profoundly moving experience and it's the right kind of nationalism in the sense, I, I think, that was being embodied there. It was a sense of gratitude to God for this wonderful nation. Now, I, I know some people might disagree, some people might find it objectionable. I, I don't really understand that, but fair enough. But can you see the point? It's, it's a formative ritual, one way or another. We are stuck with formative rituals and what happens in the rodeo before the performances and before the events is is one of them. And there are other examples that um, Jamie Smith highlights and um, his point is that all of these um, activities of what we think of as secular life have a profound capacity to shape us. Now, this is really significant for us I think as uh, members of churches. I'll tell you why in a second. Now, I know some of you are visiting from other churches, and in that case, a particular welcome to you. Um, But I I need to explain something about this denomination's liturgical practices. We um, have been influenced, as all of you who are members of the CREC know, by the recognition of the significance of a long, long history of liturgies in worship. So if you go to a CREC church service, what you find is there's a very fixed structure, which is more or less the same in pretty much every CREC church. There'll be minor variations, but there's a fixed order in which things happen. There's a call to worship. There's a confession of sin during which you will kneel and then you'll stand afterwards. You'll probably stand for some of the prayers as well. Um, There'll be a lot of Bible reading and sermon and prayer in the middle of the service. There'll be a creed. There'll almost always, I don't know of any CREC church that doesn't have the Lord's Supper towards the end of the service and there'll be a final benediction standing, sitting, kneeling, eating. And doing that in a certain order is designed specifically, first, to reflect the historic Christian practice, second, to reflect the character of the gospel, Because the gospel has this shape to it. God calls us into his presence. God calls us to confess our sins. We stand and are assured of our forgiveness. We're taught through the word. Then we have communion with God. We're brought into closer relationship with him. Then we're blessed and sent out into the world to live for him. Liturgy, worship liturgy, is life in microcosm. So it's historic. It's um, uh, it's designed to um, reflect the shape of the gospel. And it's designed to form us. The principle at work is the principle that Jamie Smith is highlighting. If you bring your kids every week into a worship service where they kneel to confess their sins, that will... Inculcate a certain vision of the holiness of God that cannot be got any other way. And let me encourage you, if, you, if you're at a church that um, uh, where you're not in the habit of making those um, physical gestures during worship, don't start doing it in worship. You'll confuse everybody and they'll think you've gone bonkers. But I encourage you in private to try kneeling to confess your sins to God. If you've never done that, you should not go to your grave without doing that. Because you will experience a kind of relational orientation to God, which will form you in significant ways. And if you do it regularly, it will form you because of the habit that's being inculcated. So I think it's wonderful that within the CREC, we have recognized That for that hour or hour and a half, uh, let me be honest, hour and 40 minutes when I'm preaching, um, on a Sunday morning, what we do with our bodies matters. The irony is, of course, that we've forgotten that what we do in the rest of the 168 hours during the week also matters. Matters. And it's striking to me that in many other parts of the Christian world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are much better in this regard. So many of you will have come into CREC circles through... Uh, Baptist churches, uh, Campus Crusades, Navigators, other churches or parachurch ministries that have a bit less intentionality about worship liturgy. But boy, do they have intentionality about other liturgies. Like if you get up in the morning as a Navigator staff member and you've not done your daily Bible reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's a liturgy built into your daily life which is profoundly formative. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who haven't had the blessing of being in a church that for an hour and a half a week instantiates a formative liturgy will nonetheless be shaped wonderfully by what they do the rest of the time. And I wonder if sometimes we think, well, because I've got the liturgy for an hour and a half on Sunday, we can ignore how we live the rest of the week. Is it not possible that we could learn a great deal from some of our highly self-disciplined, Baptist, low church evangelical, campus crusade, navigators, enter name of um, Baptistic oriented parachurch ministry here, friends, just to learn from them how they shape themselves. An illustration, I think, um, if if we don't do this, then we will have become like those delusional health fanatics who think you can basically get healthy by one supercharged milkshake a week. You know, the kind, you know the, the, <laughs> I, I need to get fit, I need to get in shape, I need to change my diet, so I'm going to go and buy a blender, Obviously, because you to buy a blender. And then you're going to go and buy all the kind of expensive ingredients, the almond milk and quinoa and pomegranate seeds and chia seed and spinach. And you put it all in the blender and you... And you've got this super-duper uh, healthy, full of antioxidants, um, health drink, if you can call it that. And then you film yourself on Instagram drinking it. And like... I'm on this healthy diet for one meal a week and the rest of the time I'm going to eat hamburgers and Chick-fil-A and donuts and I'm going to drink Red Bull and Mountain Dew. I think that's what happens actually to many folks in CREC churches. For we have one health drink a week and the rest of the time we live on a, a disordered diet of spiritual junk food because we don't bring the lessons that we should have learned about the importance of liturgy in worship into the formation of habits in the rest of our lives. Meanwhile, our Baptist friends, I like a guy who, yeah, know, he occasionally eats hamburgers at Sunday lunch when he probably should have something a bit more substantial, but the rest of the time he kind of eats healthy, he walks to work and plays soccer a couple of times a week and he's in far better shape than we are because the liturgies that shape him are more pervasive throughout the whole of his life let's not load so much onto the hour and a half on Sunday that we start thinking that's going to solve all of our habit forming problems so habits okay let me talk just very briefly about um, the relationships um, issue Um, I think this is harder. Um, And I'm puzzled about why. Why is it that it is harder to make up for aspects of our character that have been misformed by negligent relationships? It may be because these ought to take place earlier in our lives, and things that happen earlier are... More deeply embedded in us. Uh, linguists, for example, neurolinguists will tell you that basically it's the first four years of your life is when you get to learn language. Um, and if there's if there's a relational tool, right, it's language. Um, and we have a particular kind of neuroplasticity, a particular kind of our, our brains can respond to linguistic input in those first four years in a way you can't in the next however many years you live. Which means if you have, if you have a child who is deaf at birth, even if they subsequently receive wonderful hearing implants or whatever is necessary so they can hear, they'll probably never learn language if they get that hearing from the age of eight, 10 onwards. They'll never learn language with the same facility that somebody would if they had it at birth. And I wonder whether the emotional thing is tougher to crack because, like, if, if, you, if you have a child who has been emotionally neglected just for a year or two, who is then taken out of that circumstance and adopted by a loving family, that child will have scars for the rest of his or her life. I, I know of... Uh, t- tragic children in that situation back in England um, with parents who are delightful and sacrificial and loving and adopted them and the the children bear those seemingly ineradicable scars of horrible emotional neglect and abuse from just, f- just for a couple of years you'd think 20 years could make up for two wouldn't you and um, I'm not sure that it can. Um, I think it it may just be more difficult to patch up really, really broken um, people if the cause is that kind of emotional neglect and abuse. That said, um, I have, again, and this is, Uh, Just a a footnote to a couple of schools of thought that I've read and I'm a long way away from being able to process and um, summarize comprehensively. But I found helpful. Um, I mentioned them yesterday, I'll mention them briefly again today. Uh, René Girard, French uh, philosopher, articulated in a number of his works the significance of what he called mimesis, imitating other people. Um, uh, I I don't find his work particularly easy to read. There's a book by Luke Burgess called Wanting, which is a popularization of some of his ideas. And the underlying point is, actually his point often seems to be a negative one, that we, um, what we call, let's say, envy, is being drawn to things that other people have or do or are in a negative way but it seems to me obvious that you could do that positively and one or two points Burgess and, uh, and Girard in different ways highlight that the, the example of um, Captain Scully would be an instance of that If you know, can we exploit that, can, can we find ways to put ourselves deliberately and self-consciously in positions where we can see other people being better at being Christ-like, better at being human than we are. And I think you will find if, if... Well, one of the questions to ask yourself is, who are your role models? Who are your role models? Who, who, who are the people that you self-consciously look at and try to be like? And I don't think we should place ourselves above simply asking such people, can, can I just come round to spend a morning with you and your family like come, I, would you mind if I came around for lunch one day with my wife and kids because I've noticed there's something about the way that you conduct yourself that, that I find admirable and I can't put my finger on it but I want to try to pick it up don't be too proud to do that don't be too proud to do that, and and don't be don't be embarrassed about it as well. You probably embarrass the person you're asking, but uh, if you explained what you were looking for, I think you might find it. Ladies, if you uh, if you're feeling overwhelmed with your first child and it's tough, or your husband's away at work all the time, you've got like a six-week-old baby. It's like, what do I do? Well, find a mum who seems to be able to manage eight wonderfully, and just ask. Can I? Would you mind if I just came around with my little screamer for for a day? Just to see how I'm not asking you to perform for me. I'm just I want to kind of try and soak up relationally the atmosphere of your home. And it's not that you will learn things necessarily, though you might. It's that you will see embodied in her and in her children something transformative. The best example I can think of this. I'm going to embarrass him now by, by praising him. You, you know um, Ben Merkel. Um, some of you know Ben Merkel. He's the president of New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. Um, when he was doing his PhD, he was over in England, uh, not far from Oxford, where he was studying. And, and my family and I went to see him. Uh, and his family, they invited us around for dinner and we were just getting to know him and Becca and the kids, and, and they were renting this old farmhouse near Oxford, this beautiful old farmhouse, and we went round for, for dinner. And basically, um, mostly the ladies, with not much help from Ben and me and, uh, and the other Ben, um, the ladies spent the entire afternoon making this wonderful meal with kind of things I'd never heard of like honey butter what's honey butter I never knew there was a it's amazing isn't it it's like honey is great butter is great so what should we do I know (laughs) anyway so they're making this glorious meal and um and Ben and I were just chatting we went for a walk the kids were playing outside a little bit and we sat down and and Ben uh, prayed, and then he had a couple of things. He, he said something, and his sons replied back to him about honoring their mother, and it was really kind of beautiful. And we just ate this meal, and there was something about it that was just this was a family whose relationships with each other were so beautiful, and so Christ filled, so joyful. It was the happiest meal I think I'd ever been at. And it, it almost brings me to tears just re- thinking of it. And I just, I sat there at one point, just looking around thinking, I want to have this for my family. My kids were are a few years younger than his. And it was perfect because like, Ben and I are about the same age, but he and Becca had had children a few years earlier. And he was close enough to me for him not to be like Superman. <laughs> but sufficiently far away that I had really got something to aspire for. And I didn't learn anything, in a sense. I was just gripped by that encounter with him and his family. I I, I don't think I've ever told him that. I've told (laughs) dozens of other people today and hundreds of other people on other occasions, so i should probably thank him at some point. Um, So the positive power of seeing somebody admirable and seeing... um, Goodness instantiated in them. Don't underestimate it. And the other person that you really should read is a chap called Edwin Friedman um, who wrote a book called A Failure of Nerve. Now this is more relevant in situations where perhaps you're a parent trying to uh, inculcate relationally maturity and virtue in a child or a teacher in your students or a pastor in your congregants or if you have some kind of responsibility to lead others. And the point that Friedman makes again and again and again and again from different angles is you don't do it by cajoling, you don't do it by berating people, you don't do it by pleading with people. The the leaders who manage to shape other people's lives are those who maintain what he calls a self-differentiated or non-anxious presence. They're just... They know what they're doing, and they just cheerfully get on with it. They stay in touch with you, close enough relationally for you to see what they're doing, but they're not desperately cajoling you to try and persuade you to be like them. They just embody whatever it is that they're trying to get others to follow. The, the way for a father to encourage his son to calm down and be less uh, frustrated is not to shout, will you just calm down? <laughs> oh it is to be that calming presence. It's what Scully was to me after I hadn't been that to my son. And we were both learning together. Now here is a man who's without even realizing it, he's showing us an embodied vision of what one tiny aspect of Christian maturity. Of course, that's what Jesus is. This is why the incarnation is important. Had we world enough and time, we could that this whole subject could be reoriented under the heading of the incarnation, because what God has done in Christ is to be a non-anxious presence among us. Jesus is he's the friedmanian archetype of a of a leader who who has galvanized billions of his followers simply by doing what his father called him to do not by shouting at and berating and pleading with and trying to cajole his followers into shaping up he just He's got his own life sorted out and he lives it in full view of his people. He did it for like three years and that's all. And he's changed the world. So Friedman, who's actually uh, I think a liberal Jew who's now dead. uh, He died a few years ago. He's unconsciously fleshing out one of the implications of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man among us with us whom we can and should aspire to be like okay it's 10 o'clock we're going to take a break now um, i suggest we what half an hour or something um what, what does the schedule look like let's come back in 15 minutes let's come back in 15 minutes and then we'll um uh, move on we'll think about uh social media and its horrors and then we'll have some time for q a thank you